Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, July 27th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippi politicians at the Neshoba County Fair are speaking out on issues in the state. Surviving family members attend the preliminary hearing of the man accused of murdering eight people while members of the Lincoln County community adjust to the loss. That's just a shame. A life ended so shortly. But people will remember the good things. That's what you hope for. Outlawed by the federal government and illegal in Mississippi, hear from a pediatric neurologist on the paradox of pot. And in our book club segment, the story of one of Mississippi's most courageous intellectuals and social activists. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Two Mississippi officials are voicing conflicting views on taxes and the state budget. Some say the standoff could be a preview of the next gubernatorial election. Democratic Attorney General Jim Hood and Lieutenant Governor Tate Reeves each spoke about the state budget at the Neshoba County Fair. Hood says changes must happen to improve Mississippi's economy, mental health services and infrastructure. When asked about running, he says it's a compliment. You know, I'm looking at that issue, and that's an honor. Somebody think you might be worthy of actually serving as a governor in office is something that I'm really considering. I've had so many Democrats, and what's astounding is how many Republicans. Most of them are people that are independents. They vote for who they like. Uh, they're business people before they're partisan, and they know that our state is not moving forward right now, and unless we make some change, then we're going to be stuck in the same place, number 50. Our economic forecast, we are number 50. Economic forecast because of the debt they've run up on a credit card. They claim we didn't raise any taxes, but they have run up. They've doubled our debt. We owe $4.3 billion in our state. They put us on a credit card. We've seen this before. It's a bad. It ends bad, and so many business people see that, and so there's, that's encouraging. Now, my wife... Debbie's got to deal with all that, you know, and and, uh, she's a good Christian lady. She worries about the least among us and sees what, you know, poverty and what we're having, we need to do in our state. And that's a decision that, you know, a family's got to make. We've got two years, never know if I'll be living then, so we'll see. Republican Reeves spoke on mental health, education services, and balancing the budget. When asked about running, he says there's still time to decide, but pauses for the national anthem. 
Look, we've got um, about 19 months until qualifying deadline. I've been very, very blessed in my career to serve Mississippians uh, for 14 years now, uh, working first as, as our state's treasurer and in the last six years in a policy arena. I don't think I have to tell any of y'all that policy is what drives me. Uh, I'm absolutely convinced that the policies that we're putting in place are going to make a difference for, for kids in Mississippi for the long term. You just look at these education results uh, that have happened in our state in the last five years, and it's, it's remarkable. Reeves followed up saying he sees the positive and his response was not a no. Uh, One of the things I talked about today is uh, we live in the greatest state in the greatest country in the history of the world. And there are some politicians that all they want to do is, is bad mouth and talk about how bad things are. Uh, and I believe they got to have a special kind of blinders on to not see the positive things that are going on in our state. That was not a no, by the way. And I'm a politician, doesn't mind telling people no. You probably noticed that. Both leaders spoke on mental health as well. Hood says things have gotten off course. First of all, yes, we need more mental health care in the communities. That's the cheapest bang for our buck to provide that mental health care uh, out in the communities. But our problem is we don't have enough beds to start with. And a lot of other states that got sued you know, over this, they might have had too many beds. We don't have enough because just like at Whitfield, I mean, somebody, most of these people that I'm talking about the drug and alcohol unit at Whitfield, they're self-medicating. Man, they got mental health issues. I, as DA, you know, I sent so many to jail, it haunts me to think about uh, I didn't have anywhere else to send them. And they had a mental health issue. Had it been recognized at an early age, it wouldn't have been in the criminal justice system. So uh, there's a, a, a lot of work to be done. And, yes, we need both. And, and we've been working on it for three or four years. And we had the legislature going to the right direction. I had them given about $15 million more a year for at least two years. It was actually three of that they funded that additional money. And then they gave all these tax cuts, and they cut it out, and we got sued within a month. Now we're going to have to defend this and spend money on lawyers when we need to be spending it on the least among us. And that is what's wasteful. That's, that's short-sighted, and that's, that's the problem that we're uh, encountering right now. It's just legislators, particularly in leadership, a lot of legislators want to do a road tax. They wanted to do some things that would help us get out of the hole. But there's some that are all they're worried about is the next election and whether or not they can say, well, I gave nobody, you know, I, didn't, I didn't raise anybody's taxes, and they don't care if the house burns down. Lieutenant Governor Reeves says he's worked on real solutions. Yeah, the Attorney General has worked really hard to protect the department and protect the status quo. He went so far as to try to avoid uh, the tax report, which was critical of the way in which we operate, from even becoming public, where the taxpayers would even be able to see it. And so I think that, um, you know, the Department of Justice has sued us, uh, has sued the state of Mississippi because we haven't uh, done enough community-based care. Uh, We do too much institutionalization. Um, And so we've got to work together to find solutions uh, to that. Uh, There's there's been a lot of discussion about um, those who are, are currently... Um, committed to various drugs and and alcohol abuse, uh, opioids being a a prime example. One of the things that we did this year is we we worked with emergency first responders to pass legislation to provide for the medicine necessary to actually save the lives for those who have OD'd. Those are real solutions that are going to affect real people, and so that's something that we're going to continue to work towards. When asked about an executive-level agency approach to this department, he says he supports accountability. Well, I certainly uh, support uh, having accountability for every state agency. I believe that if the if this particular department or any department had direct reports to the governor of our state who is elected, uh, it would have more accountability. But there are a lot of different ways to skin that cat, and, and it's something that we're going to continue to work towards and try to find solutions. Um, but I definitely think that, that that particular agency and all state agencies need more accountability. The Neshoba County Fair continues today.
Coming up, prosecutors prepare to present the case of a Lincoln County man accused of killing eight people to a grand jury while the community tries to move forward. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and the state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A Lincoln County man charged with shooting eight people to death will go before a grand jury. Surviving family members, co-workers, and fellow community members are struggling to heal from the losses. Some 24 officers provided tight security in the courtroom during 35-year-old Corey Godbolt's preliminary hearing Wednesday. He faces a capital murder charge and seven seven counts of first-degree murder for a shooting rampage in May. Judge Brian Harbour presided. Mississippi Bureau of Investigations officer Jason Leggett testified several witnesses identified Godbolt as the shooter. Investigators also say they've recovered two rifles and two pistols. Lincoln County Assistant District Attorney Brendan Adams tells MPB's Desiree Frazier there's more to come. This is still under investigation and we are still in the process of trying to get evidence turned over, things of that nature. Mr. Godbolt is entitled to his day in court. He is innocent until proven guilty. This is a long process. This investigation is still in its infancy stages, and we want to make sure that uh, we have everything that we need. Your feeling about how the hearing went? Uh, I thought everything went fine. So what happens next? Uh, The case will be turned over to the next available grand jury, which I, I don't have a timetable on. Joni Martin is a business owner in Brookhaven. She tells MPB's Desiree Frazier how things have changed in the community since the shootings. She refers to a framed photo of 17-year-old Jordan Blackwell, who was killed using his body to shield his younger cousin from gunfire. Well, to me personally, I see more law enforcement downtown. As a business owner, they seem to have ramped everything up. People just don't feel as safe as we once did. Brookhaven was a small community, and you always felt like you didn't have to worry about that. That happened somewhere else, not here. But now it's kind of struck home, so people are just a little bit more conscious of where you're going and what, you know, pay more attention to where you're going and what you see. So I don't like that. You don't feel as safe as you once did, but you do see more law, so that is good. Do you know any of the family members? The deputy that was killed, I knew his mother-in-law, not Real close, but this is a small town, so you know there's association. You know somebody that knew them or that was related to. I know some of the other families, people that live next to them. So it's all connected. We all know everybody, you know. So it's been hard for the sheriff's department because this is the first time anything like that has ever happened. And I can't even imagine what some of these families are going through. Don't want to ever find out. I have one of the young men that was shot the barbershop here on the corner. He used to get his hair cut there. One of the barbers brought down a newspaper article that we had on one of the, the senior, the guy that was in high school, and they're framing this article to go in their barbershop in memory of him. It's hanging on my wall over here. Blackwell, the young man that was, the well, a star on the football team over here at BHS, he always got his hair cut right down here, and one of the barbers, He said he was such a good kid, he said, and he came in here and had an upbeat, always had a smile for everybody. He said, and we just felt like we needed to do something and hang it on the wall so people won't forget that he was such a good young man. 
good-looking young man, wasn't he? It's, it's just, that's just a shame. A life ended so shortly. But they'll have that down there, and people will remember the good things. That's what you hope for. Well, at the hearing this morning, they determined that there's enough witness, enough reason to send it to the grand jury. Your thoughts on that? Oh, I wouldn't have doubted that. I'm sure that they have enough evidence. I mean, there shouldn't be any problem with that. This should go forward pretty fast. How would justice be served in your mind? Well, he should be incarcerated for the rest of his life. I don't really have a opinion basically on capital punishment or that sort of thing. I've never experienced it personally, but I will say he should never see, as they say, daylight again. And that's basically what he wanted. So I hope he gets his wish. How you guys keep going? Just like everybody does. You just start your day and go about your business and uh, pray that it's a good day and you don't have to experience any of that again, you know. Just keep going. That's what all these people would want you to do. So that's what you do. Well, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. District Attorney D. Bates hopes to present the case to a grand jury by December. Coming up next, medical or recreational, legal or illegal, it's the paradox of pot. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Marijuana is illegal for medical and recreational use in Mississippi. The state legislature passed a law allowing for the use of CBD, a compound of the marijuana plant, in certain circumstances like research studies. Meanwhile, 29 states and Washington, D.C. have medical marijuana programs. Public opinion polls reveal significant support for the legalization of medical marijuana, but concern for marijuana's safe use still exists, especially for children. MPB Southern Remedy TV is exploring the paradox cannabis is in an upcoming feature. Professor of Medicine and Southern Remedy producer Dr. Rick DeShazo sat down with pediatric neurologist Brad Ingram to learn more. The two University of Mississippi doctors discuss how Ingram got interested in marijuana. My interest in using marijuana as a medical compound really came out of um, advocacy for my patients and the legislative sector. Using a cannabinoid that is an organic compound in marijuana, specifically CBD, there are over 90 of them. But using this particular one has been suggested anecdotally, meaning people have said that that it's been suggested to help in the care of people with refractory epilepsy. And so this is uh, a project that has kind of taken off nationwide, but state by state looks different depending on what your state laws look like. Majority of the way that people use it for, for this purpose, for refractory epilepsy, is crushed up plant product, uh, usually dried and then ground in an oil suspension uh, because kids can't take a pill. So they uh, mix it in an oil and put it either in their in the tube that goes directly into their stomach or in their mouth. Um, as to where are they getting it, uh, you can get it at dispensaries in states where medical marijuana has, has, a, has a legal implication. Um, in many cases, you can actually get it shipped across state lines uh, from specific companies. 
um, the, the, the medical dispensaries themselves have been studied uh, and have found to really not necessarily contain what's advertised. I've spoken with families from other states, specifically California, who use this for their children, and they will take their compound to uh, an organic chemist about, about every three months to make sure they're getting what they're supposed to be getting. The DEA studied 22 compounds looking for CBD that were advertised as CBD, and of the 22, only two contained actual CBD. The other 20 did not. And these were all advertised for children with epilepsy. The two that did contain CBD were actually advertised for cats with epilepsy. And so one of the core issues, aside from what is this doing to you, for us is what are you even taking? That's one of our biggest concerns. What is your opinion and what would your advice be as to the level of concern a parent should have about their kids using marijuana recreationally? I've had patients who, whose parents, not necessarily in epilepsy, but in other cases, where they would prefer they use marijuana recreationally at home in large quantities than drink alcohol. Um, and I think that this concept of marijuana is safe because it grows out of the ground, that is what, that concerns me. And we, that has been driven, I think, in the past five years leaps and bounds past where it was in 2008, 9. If you asked almost anyone in 2005, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, if marijuana was okay to use um, in the pediatric brain without consequence, who would have told you, of course it is? And that was only 5, 10 years ago. And now there's been a shift to this being much more um, natural, safe, herbal supplement kind of thing. So those two things, the combination of the real increase in potency with uh, almost a laissez-faire attitude about what it even is, those are the two things that concern me the most. What is different about the brain in, in a young person and the brain in an adult? We actually believe that your brain is developing up to at least age 21 but in many cases, we think that brain development stops at 26 years of age. I think the question of does childhood and teenage use of recreational marijuana affect the developing brain, that question has been answered. The answer is yes. And that it, that's borne out not just in uh, neuropsychiatric testing, but it's also been studied in the brains on imaging of how um, their brains look uh, specifically related to how the metabolism of the brain looks on PET scans um, and uh, on some functional MRI studies. I mean, it, this, is, this has been answered. Early childhood use of, or even teenage use of marijuana changes the structure of the brain. That's Dr. Rick DeShazo with Dr. Brad Ingram of UMMC. Learn more about the laws, research, and attitudes towards cannabis tonight on a Southern Remedy TV special, The Paradox of Pot, at 7.30 on MPB TV. Coming up, here from acclaimed Mississippi author Robert Hamblin, Hamblin on the life and times of Evans Harrington. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
Coming up on this week's Season Pass, we'll speak with Ambassador Tom Lindenberger about the growing sport of pickleball. We'll also speak with Valerie Smith about marksmanship competitions, three-gun, pistol shoot, and more. And if you've been to one of Mississippi State Parks, you may have seen a short metal pole with some chains hanging off of it. Those are for disc golf. Larry Yulman will talk to us about the sport. That's all coming up on MPB's Season Pass, this morning at 10 on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Professor and acclaimed author Robert Hamlin hails from Boonville, Mississippi. Since earning degrees from Delta State University and the University of Mississippi, his career has been filled with writing. He is author of a biography on William Faulkner and founder of the Center for Faulkner Studies at Southeast Missouri State University. His latest work is a biography called Living in Mississippi, The Life and Times of Evans Harrington. It's the story of... Excuse me. It's the story of one of Mississippi's most courageous intellectuals and social activists, according to Barry Hanna. Harrington was active in important civil rights and free speech issues and cases. Robert Hamlin tells us more about Harrington. He said that when he first went into the military, he was very defensive about his native region. But the more he listened and talked and argued, uh, he came to see... uh, the problems with segregation and racial injustice. And so he, he said that shift started in the military. But what really pushed him over the edge into liberalism was the Meredith incident at Ole Miss. Uh, he observed that riot and saw the mob and saw the Mississippi Highway Patrol abandon their duties and saw the marshals attacked. He uh, rushed to defend Duncan Gray, his minister friend, during the riot. After the Meredith incident, he he was a full-fledged activist. Why the title Living in Mississippi? That's an essay he wrote at the height of the uh, segregation crisis. Uh, he was teaching there at Ole Miss. It's a very honest uh, autobiographical essay. It was published in the Yale Review, and it just describes the dilemma of what I call the man in the middle, person who was raised in segregation and who shared in some ways, certainly when he was growing up, many of the uh, racial attitudes of of the the whites of his time and place, and then one who uh, had this conversion, broke away from uh, his segregationist upbringing, even the racism of his parents and neighbors. And so living in Mississippi is a paradox in that essay because it describes the dilemma of a person who who is sympathetic, actually, uh, to people on both sides of the issue, who loves people on both sides of the issue. As I say, he's sort of caught in the middle. In one, one passage in the essay, he describes uh, going to school that morning, and he sees the first black policeman on the streets of Oxford. And though he had signed the petition to help hire that first African-American policeman, he's still shocked. Uh, he, and he talks about the old redneck background coming out. And he, when he stops at this intersection and sees this black policeman, he's shocked uh, because, you know, that's just not done in that part of the country at that time. So he's torn between these opposites, his upbringing and then his, his, his change of heart, change of mind. I think one reason Evans survived at Ole Miss, he was a classic liberal. He was a member of the uh, ACLU, and he defended the right of the Ku Klux Klan to hold a rally, just as he defended the rights of civil rights protesters uh, to march and demonstrate. 
he believed in individual liberties, civil rights for all, and he thought it was just as unfair to trump up charges against a Klansman as it was to uh, bring fraudulent charges against a protester. What do you think his legacy was in Mississippi, particularly at Ole Miss? Well, I present Evans as a representative figure of a type, I think, that's not given enough due in histories of that period. I treat him as a white Southern liberal who stayed in the state and worked to make a difference. You know, many, many people uh, during that era, both white as well as black, left the state for uh, better opportunities and freer environments. Uh, he stayed. Uh, he stayed because he loved Mississippi. He loved Ole Miss. In the book, I talk about three different areas uh, where he made contributions. One was in the academic life. Uh, he eventually became chair of the department at Ole Miss. He was co-founder of the Faulkner and Yachtnapatawpha Conference. He was active in the Southern Literary Festival. So he had quite a career as an academic. I also talk about his political activism. And then I, I discuss his work as an author. I think he was quite a good writer. He wrote one novel under his own name and three novels under a pseudonym, Gilbert Terrell. And so I think it's a combination of all these areas that represent his legacy. He probably does not rise to greatness in any one of these single areas, but as an aggregate, if you look at his life as a whole, I think he was quite noteworthy. And I hope this book calls attention to that. Robert Hamlum is the author of Living in Mississippi, The Life and Times of Evans Harrington. Dr. Hamlin, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Robert Hamlin will be at Square Books in Oxford tonight at 5 o'clock. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu.